to investors is probably already priced in so if the crowd already believed then it, then then either you just believe it's a magnitude bigger or you have to have some sort of reason why the crowd is is wrong about a particular a particular type of thing and so and and and, and that, that's that's harsh so you know you you're going to make a ton of mistakes when investing investing is very very humbling experience i mean so many mistakes in my life and then even when you're doing well, so if you invested in technology startups in the last 10 years, which is what I have done. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Oren Hoffman, CEO at SafeGraph. Oren, as I kind of alluded to at the end of part one, I've got a bunch more questions. Let's do it. Just for anybody who missed part one, can you give us the quick elevator pitch on what SafeGraph does? Sure. SafeGraph is a data company, so we sell data about physical places, and we just sell data, so literally just facts. We don't sell. We don't have a UI. We don't have any type of analytics tools or anything like that. We just sell data. So think of it as like rows and columns or a big CSV of facts. So my first question is, you know, your previous company over at LiveRamp has been so successful. You have this multi-billion dollar business, why do it all over again? I, I can guess the answer, but I'm interested in, in what you'd say. Well, so you, I, I think there's a few different reasons to, to do anything right in life. And, and so to me, there's selfish reasons and there's more altruistic reasons. And so for SafeGraph, I think there's like two selfish reasons and one kind of more altruistic reason to do it. So the, the first selfish reason is more of a short-term selfish reason. So am I working on something that's like really interesting? So for me, the, the, like I like to work on really hard problems. And so if I was like, if I wasn't working on a company, I may be working on like a math problem or, or something like fun, like a puzzle or some other type of thing like that. So something that's kind of making my brain hurt, something like that for me is like a short-term optimization. And I like working on, I don't like working alone on these problems. I like working with other like super smart, engaged people. So that's the first thing I want to optimize for is I always want to be in a situation where I'm doing that hopefully my whole life I'm working on kind of hard problems with other super smart engaged people second thing and this is more of a long-term optimization is I really want the opportunity to build like a great company like a truly great iconic company that I can and and go through all the things about how to do that and, and some a company that really can survive and and thrive you know long past that that I I leave the company and there's all these different things about how, how to do that and 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 I want to kind of know to myself that I I, I, I was somebody who who did that, and then the altruistic thing is is is, is like, can we make, can is what can what we do really have a huge impact on the and and most all the other companies I've ever been involved with, they they, they certainly don't make the world a worse place. Like they're all they're 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 creating employment and they're they're we're doing all the you know we're 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 adding we're, we're we have a we have a great team and we're a good place to work and all these other types of things. But can I really impact like a significant problem in the world? And I think this is a luxury that like second time founders can have rather than first time founders. So before we started SafeGraph, I uh, put together what I thought were the biggest problems facing the world. I tried to get like the hundred biggest problems. I, I think I got to like roughly 60 
of the biggest problems. And then I, I tried to be very, very hard on myself and try to figure out which of those problems could I actually impact and could I really move the needle of, and do I have some sort of proprietary ability to move the needle on these problems? And some of them are things, whether it's like, you know, peace in the world or longevity or these other, you know, huge problems that, that I really didn't feel if I was honest with myself that I had the ability to really, really move. And it turned out there was only one problem on the entire list that I felt I really could move. And this was this ability to democratize, this was this problem of democratization of data. And if you believe that innovation is truly based on data, if you, you know, we, we've heard this all before, whether it's like AI, machine learning, et cetera, that like data is the core underpinning for that innovation. You know, you could see a world where most of that data is locked up by 12 organizations. And that's just a world where we're going to have a lot less innovation because they're just not going to be as incented to innovate. And then you're also going to see the majority of the rents for those innovations to accrue to those 12 companies. And that's not a world anybody wants. Even the people who run those 12 companies really don't want that world. And so what we, we want to do at SafeGraph is really democratize access to data so that any great innovator can get access to this core raw, raw material. And there shouldn't be any gate to, to having access to this data. You know, it's so interesting as you're saying that we... Um our, our commercial real estate fund at Greystoke Investments, we're trying to do the Warren Buffett thing and go away from where the crowd is going, right? And and uh, not just buy the popular thing that everybody else is bidding up, you know, industrial buildings that have Amazon as a tenant or something like that, right? Yep. And it ends up like some of the highest paying real estate sub-asset class in the world right now is like really unique Airbnbs. And okay. so we've been looking at like, what would it take to build like a significant portfolio of like adventure cabins at ski resorts and national parks and exciting places. Yep. And if Airbnb didn't make all the data on, available for free on wh what part of the country is doing well and what people are getting for rents here and, and some of these tools that you can get, AirDNA and stuff, that would have been a way, way riskier team for our team, a way riskier thing for yep. our team to get behind when we're, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to do something risky with other people's money, you know, all these kind of things. And uh, like, I just can't believe how, how much of our decision is based on freely available information that would not have been available otherwise. It's, it was a huge asset for us getting going in that side of the business. Well, you know, I asked your advice about things you've learned from some people in episode one. This time I want to ask, you know, with your work with Peter Thiel, I'm wondering any insights or ways that he's impacted you. Well, I, you know, Peter has been a mentor, investor, and he's been an investor in everything I've done and uh, a mentor to me personally. I, I, I think he is... Um, certainly in the top five smartest people I've ever met, maybe top one uh, smartest people I've ever met. Um, and just the way he thinks about the world, you cannot leave a conversation with him, whether it's in person or whether you hear him on a podcast or, you know, you um, hear a lecture without like really making you think deeply about the world. Again, you may not agree with his conclusion, but you will, you will definitely think deeply. And he's one of the you know, handful of people in the entire world that one can say that about. So, so I, I have just a very, very, very deep respect for him, and and I think he's done just a like a lot of incredible. He's, he's just you you can't beat some of just the the incredible businesses and other types of things that he started over the years. I feel like his book Zero to One is such a gift. It's an amazing book. It's 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 weird. It's weirdly, I think, the best business book ever written, and I, I think everyone should read that book. It's it's so, and it, it's like, and he's not a business book author, right? He, it's like kind of like something on the side 
that that he's done. So so even more incredible that he's done that. Well, I, I got to tell you, like it it caused me problems. We were originally going to be an apartment fund. We were going to be an apartment REIT, real estate investment trust. Yeah. And I read that book and I'm like, wow, competition is for losers. And we're not even the, we're not even the best at apartments. We're, we've got you know we were bringing on a CEO who had bought like two billion dollars worth of buildings over his career, but. Do you know what I mean? That's like a rounding error on some other people's portfolios, right? Yeah. And, and like, it was this challenge of like, well, real estate's been around forever. What can we do that isn't being done? And I, like, I felt this like anxiety. Well, everything's been done. It's just not true. And like, it took pushing ourselves. And, and that book is one of the ones that, that. It's like, very, int- one of the things that Peter is so good at is he's one of the most, he's one of the smartest people in the world. But, and, but often when you talk to these super smart people, it's actually very hard to understand them. So, but he can actually distill something in like three words. So he can take this thing of, and you know, it's getting the competitions for losers. Uh, on, and then you can, and then, and then maybe a couple more paragraphs of just kind of understanding why that is, what what goes on, how that works, how the world works around that. It's not like zero to one is a is a big book, right? It's very readable. You can read it on a plane trip. It's simple. It's very understandable. There's simple two by two graphs in there that are very easy. You know, it's not like some crazy scatter plot graph that that goes in. We've all read like many academic papers, all this other stuff that they just try to over complexify stuff. He uses very easy language that's very accessible. So anybody really, you don't have to be brilliant. Any Anyone can actually read that book and completely understand 98% of the concepts on it and really get a, a and, and, and so and to me, the, the real Real understanding of someone who's a genius is, you know, if you go back to like a Richard Feynman or something, it's like, can they actually explain this concept in a simple way? And that's one of the other things that I appreciate about Peter so uh, so much. Well, what a, again, what a gift to the rest of us that Absolutely. people with that level of sophistication can boil it down. The rest of us can get a toehold to get started, right? I'm interested. You know, you get to spend time with, with great folks like Peter. You know, you've had all the success that you've had. How do you feel like how do you feel like that has impacted your criteria in choosing what you're investing in? You know, investor in over 70 technology companies. Um, what, like, what's one of your principles that you bring from your own experience as you're making those decisions about a go, no go investment decision? Well, I mean, I think I think the classic investment advice is 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 correct, which is you 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 want to in. Invest in things that uh, that you think will be very, very, very big in the future, and that most other people will not think are very, very, very big in the future, right? And so either people won't think it's big at all, and you think it's going to be big, um, or you just think it's going to be a magnitude bigger than other people think. But you have to have some sort of disconnect, otherwise it doesn't make sense to to invest because it's probably already priced in. So if the crowd already believe, then it, then then either you just believe it's a magnitude bigger, or you have to have some sort of reason why the crowd is is wrong about a particular a particular type of thing and so and 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 that, that's that's harsh so you know you you're going to make a ton of mistakes when investing investing is very very humbling experience I've made so many mistakes in my life and then even when you're doing well so if you invested in technology startups in the last 10 years which is what I have done well okay everyone who's done that has made money 
um, 100% of people basically who's invested in technology startups the last 10 years have, have made money, have probably made a lot of money over the last. So even if you've done well, am I really better than other people? So it's, it's humbling even when you do well, if the market's growing like that. And so you really need to dive in. And so you, you can't just because even if you are making, even if your IRR is 60, 70, 80%, you know, is that better than normal? Like, I don't know. Like, and so you, you have to really kind of dive in and, and again, and it's like often it's like one or two huge wins might be driving the majority of your, you know, the, cause you, you have a power law and investing in startups is probably very different than, than real estate. And so you, you have one investment, which can, can make up for 50 losses or something. Right. And so the, and so you really have to dive in as to, okay, well, okay, you did really well, but like, okay, if you take out those two great investments, maybe you did terribly. Right. So um, really, really try to dive in to understand your process, to understand how you were thinking, putting together, like, I like writing a memo to myself pre-investment and then coming and then back later, really trying. So sometimes the investment went well. So I'll give you an example. When COVID hit in 2020, in kind of March 2020, I had a thesis at the time that, 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 that COVID was just a phase and that we'd all go back to normal really fast. And so the market was down at the time, right? If you remember, the market went down about 30%. And so I decided to invest a lot in the market at that, in that particular time in the S&P, you know, S&P 500. And then a few months later, the market came back. And in some ways, like that, 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 that investment looked like a genius. But when I read the memo to myself of why I did it, it was the wrong reason. There was a lot of reasons why the market won, but I it wasn't the reason that I thought the market was going to go up. COVID was still a very very big deal a few months a m- months later, and so you you have to you have to then go back and really kind of again it's like if you if you win a poker hand on the last flop and you were kind of just lucky, it doesn't mean you are great at playing poker. It just means you were you were lucky. That that's an interesting amount of discipline. Because, again, for ego reasons, most of us like to pat ourselves on the back and maybe ignore convenient luck. But you don't learn from that, do you? Yeah. And by the way, just because I'm saying this doesn't mean I actually do it. I'm a hypocrite like everybody else. I'm interested. You know, you get interviewed, you're public speak. What's something that people don't ask you about as much as you'd like? Or what's... What's something that you would like to talk more about? That's a good question. I think one one thing is that is is really I think these life advice questions are are interesting and I think this is where like somebody who's 40 may have a little bit more insight than someone who's whereas I think a lot of these other questions maybe maybe not. But but one life advice question one life advice is just kind of like what should you do and how should you know what you should you do? And and I think an important advice I learned is 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 in some ways to to look what smart people around you are doing and then do the opposite of those people. And I think most smart people are highly optimized for the midterm and most smart people highly optimize for optionality and both things are very 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 bad to optimize and so if you if you you know it's like people a lot of times people are optimizing for the midterm but they think they're optimizing for the long term they tell themselves a story they're optimizing for the long term but they're actually optimizing for the midterm and they're 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 doing something they don't like to do because of this midterm optimization. So this is the classic reason why people go to law school. I believe if you go to law school, you should go because you have a deep love for the law, right? You care deeply about the law and you really want to change the world using the law. You shouldn't go to law school because there's some sort of optionality reason 
for going to law school or you're trying to get your ticket punched to something or again, you know, or, or, or you know, sometimes people are like, well, I should um, move my family to uh, Tokyo because it'd be really good to have, you know, Asia on my resume for two years or something. Like, no, you should, you should go because you're so excited to go to Tokyo and you find that really, you, you want to go, that you want the adventure of being in Tokyo and it'd be really fun with your family to go do it. And, and, and not, not because you have some sort of like midterm kind of optimization type of thing and these option these optionality things i think that these smart people do um are almost generally bad where they're trying to keep all their options open and you mentioned earlier that you, you found it better when you actually were doing fewer things and as we reduce our optionality in life that's often often better for us and if you just think of like what's the ultimate reduction in optionality it's getting married right it's the ultimate like way of reducing our optionality and for 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 most people not not for everybody but for most people like that's actually like the best thing they could do in their life is is to go do that and it's, it's the one of the most fulfilling things so, so literally the act of reducing like your the, the ultimate reduction of optionality is the most is, is this great thing you do so committing to something committing to something really you really care and, and basically saying you're not going to do these other things is really, really important to do in life. And having that kind of purpose driven is really important as well. So following up with that, you know, I, I've heard that the word decision actually comes from the same root as to die. And it's this idea that we're, we're cutting off one of our, one of our future paths has to uh -huh. die I love it. when we decide. And, and it's naturally, you know, it's actually fear invoking. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's potentially harmful to short-term survival to, to kill an option that yes. could potentially feed you. Right. And so that like lizard brain level uh, has anxiety about like, well, I don't know if I want to shut that door. Right. Yeah. And yet uh, you think about everything that we've learned in, in brain science about myelinating neural connections and how experts become experts. And it's like, you know, by, by pushing outside the boundaries in the same direction, repeatedly is where mastery comes from and superior insight comes from, which would require shutting off that optionality, like you said. So my question is, for anybody listening, for myself, thinking about overcoming the fear to shut off options and commit to something, even though we don't have a crystal ball to know the future, any guidance for how to well, help I mean, what do are, that? One of the things is like, it's okay to be wrong about it too. So you could say, I'm never going to do X and later change your mind about it, right? And then you could blame it on your past self from a few years ago, like the past Orn didn't know what he was talking about, right? Now I'm much more wiser. I know what I'm talking about now. So just, you know, you know for instance, you know, when I was younger, I had, I had this vision I was going to write a novel, like a lot of people want to write a novel, right? And I would take notes on the side for years and really want to kind of, and I always like, okay, one day I'm going to write a novel. And every year, it's never, it was never the top five things. So never any year I was going to go do it. And then one at one point I said, look, I'm never going to write a novel. I'm just going to take it off my list. I'm crossing it off. And not that I'm not going to do it this year. I am never going to do it, right? So I'm just crossing off my list. Five years from now, maybe I'll change my mind about it. But to me, right now, I'm never going to do it. It's and not not not. Oh, maybe I'll do it. Maybe not. Like, no, never. It's as simple. It's not on my list. I'm never going to get to it. I'm just never going to do it. And it's okay to be wrong later and change your mind about it. It's not like my. It's not like you know, people are going to think of me in some terrible way. Oh, he changed his mind about doing a novel or, you know, he must be a bad person or something. No, you, you just change your mind. It's okay. Can you, can you tell us about 
something you shut the door on, whether to build LiveRamp or, or to build SafeGraph now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, again, it's these good opportunities that come at you all the time. So there's, there's always tons of good, the, the more successful you are, the more good opportunities you're going to have. You're gonna, should you be on this board? Oh, that's kind of interesting. I can be on this board. I can do this thing. I can do, you know, and, but, but they all come with a cost of potentially not doing a great opportunity. And each one individually is quite interesting and you're going to learn something and meet some cool people. You're going to get, you know, nice compensation for it, right? You, all this other stuff that, that comes at you. But, but again, if you fill your life with these good things, you're going to hit a local maxima where you're never going to and, and you see so many people do that where they they end up just like hitting this local maxima and you sometimes wonder why they're at that and, and just because they just had all these great things that came good things came at them and then they never had time to explore the great things i'm such a nerd for warren buffett stuff and he says it's easy to become wealthy all you need is eight hours a day to read and think <laughs> <laughs> right? And he only buys companies that come with management, right? He's not going to go run Dairy Queen. He's not going to go do these things. And yeah, that's right. And, you know, another thing that, that he said and Charlie Munger has said is that, you know, their goal is to get rich slowly, not get rich quickly. They always they always knew they were going to get rich. They weren't in a hurry to go do it. And I, I think that is, and, and get rich doesn't have to be in wealth. It could be in uh, fulfillment of life. It could be in many, many other types of things. So you don't, you don't, you, 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 you can stick to your plan. And there's some plans that just like have a very high chance of success as long as you're, you're willing to stick to it. <laughs> so this is something I was arguing with myself about this week, actually, is I make way more money running a real estate fund than most other things that I do, right? Yeah. But I still do some CEO coaching of other CEOs. And I was asking myself, like, why am I doing this? Like, it, I can charge hundreds of dollars an hour, but it, like, it, cannot, it cannot touch what raising a lot of money and putting it to work does. And I finally came to the conclusion because I like it. Yeah. Like, it's the same reason that I that I still, I'm an art school dropout. I still paint. Right. It doesn't make me good money. Like it's, it's enjoyable to me. And I had to decide like, yeah, I'm not doing this because Warren Buffett would endorse this decision. I'm doing this because he would endorse it from a happiness standpoint, not from a financial best use of my time. And anyway, any well, thoughts that's about right. that? I mean, like, again, you, you, you can't run your whole life in a spreadsheet or something. So you, you just have to, it's like, and otherwise it's like, and you can't evaluate every decision that comes in. It's like my kids constantly are asking me about different things. I'm not like, oh, hold on, before I evaluate your request, I'm going to put that in my algorithm and decide whether, no, you're like, just spend time with your kids. Is that really the best use of time? I don't know, but you like it. It's fun. You're enjoying it. And so you're, you're, you're going to do it. And, you know, and I, I, again, you can't like overthink life too much. Well, yeah. It's, I mean, it's the same thing with this podcast. Like we, we've had sponsors on and off, but I actually got rid of the sponsors because I didn't want the pressure. And I yeah. wanted to, like, I, I'm doing this for enjoyment. I'm doing this for my own learning and fulfillment. And, uh, that's why it ended up here. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, it's like, it's a hobby and then you could treat it as a hobby. And so, you know, one of the things I have to like in the, like giving advice to people is I, I don't do CEO coaching because that, that is, but, but I'm happy to, to do one coaching session with somebody. I give some advice and whatever. And, 
but I, I don't want compensation for it because I don't want to treat it like a job. I want to do it because it's fun for me and I'm giving back or, you know, or some sort of thing and maybe, maybe create some goodness in the world or, or those types of things. Same thing with like the podcast. It's like a hobby. Once you start like getting revenue, it's like a business and this is really the best business or should you be doing real estate more, right? Then then you actually have to make these like hard choices where it's like, oh, I don't, I'm not making money. It's actually, not making money means it's a hobby. So now it's fun. I'm enjoying it. And I think we all have, whether it's gardening or painting, or we all have different hobbies we do, not because they make us money, but because they make us human. That like needs to be a t-shirt. Like that's such a great <laughs> quote. I love that. Well, listen, I know we're kind of winding down for time here. I'm interested when you think about how many ambitious people there are, how many smart people are, and yet you've achieved from a statistical perspective, you've achieved so much more than a lot of smart, hardworking people. What's one of the other reasons that we haven't covered that you'd attribute that to? Uh, I, I don't know why some people achieve more than others. And I don't know why once people reach a certain level of achievement, some people keep going and they put all this continued stress on and some people, you know, go to a winery or something. And so you know, I, I think these are very hard to know. And, and I think it's very hard if you look at like, if you're trying to invest in some 16 year old or something and you could have like you know a percentage of the future goodness that they give to society i i don't think you wouldn't i don't i i don't think one would really have some i don't i don't think like it, it would be very hard to do that in in any uh good way i also think people change over time as well so i, I think these are hard lessons to learn and, and and in some ways people are somewhat snowflakes so even if you were able to gain some lesson by reading like a deep biography of Harry Truman or something like that, I'm not sure that's like applicable to any other president you would read about. And so and, and then then and then it's, of course, not applicable to people broader than being a president. Yeah. OK, maybe I'll ask it a different way. I think one of the reasons I've done these, you know, 650 episodes is to to look for commonalities from extremely high achievers from all sorts of different backgrounds, you know, whether like they're sports or authors or business people or nonprofit people, right? And like some of the things that have- What have you found? Uh, listening, the highest achievers are, are really like, they're not good listeners, they're like exceptional listeners, mm. humility. Like I repeatedly hear the like, willing to overcome their own ego and listen to the facts or seek disconfirming evidence or, mm. I see that to a greater degree than I see others, you know, thinking so much more fully about what's in it for them instead of what's in it for seems to attract money and success and promotions. And it's interesting how many realms just those three principles show up in. And I think like, you know, for a lot of the world, there's this idea of, hey, you need to get off the couch and get to work. But for the kind of people who make it on this show, I actually feel like there's like, it's like this idea of like, don't just act, stop and think harder. And these people who are willing to be like much more reflective, like, so we have high achievers on here and then we have like extremely high achievers. Yeah. And I find them so self-reflective and, and more interested in the truth than their ego. Those are a couple, those of, couple of things. Those super high achievers like were, do you think those super high achievers were super self-reflective before they were super high achievers? Like, do you think there's some sort of correlation going the other way? potentially or or do you think it's uh, or do you think they became super high achievers because they were super reflective that's a, that's a super interesting question and i i obviously don't know the answer because i didn't get to interview them before and after right yeah but you know i had eric juan on the show 
Yep. Long before he was worth seventeen billion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I know and, him. He's he's always been a very self-reflective type of person. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess one other principle is these people they figure out some tool, some framework, and they go so much deeper on it than anyone else. Like, you know, when I had him on and he talked about like going to one hundred and forty thousand users with with zero marketing, it was mm-hmm. like obsessive, maniacal customer service, like yeah. beyond crazy customer service, right? And he just, he picked that winning horse and he rode it so hard. Or like, I'll have people on the show like uh, Steve Blank from Stanford, you, you know, yeah. Steve Blank, right? And I'd read all his books and I'm like so excited to talk to him. And I'm thinking like, oh, he's going to say something I've never heard. I'm just waiting for this nugget. And I'm like partially disappointed that everything he said was stuff I'd already read multiple times, right? Uh-huh. But the insight was that he lived it so much harder than I realized. And like his idea of like, you know, customer validation of like treating your startup like it's a scavenger hunt for a repeatable business model, right? Yeah. He's like, I make all my students go do a hundred customer surveys before before they commit to anything, right? And he's like, but for me, when it was my businesses, I would do 300. Yeah, wow. You know, and you're, and you're just like, I guess they just go deeper with it. When I get to talk to them, I find out they're living it way harder than I, than I had recognized by observing them or hearing about them. Yeah. So I'm interested... And, and you don't have to have an answer because I'm putting it on the spot. But I'm wondering if there's a framework that maybe you feel like you live harder than others. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I'm probably, but, you know, you know I, 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 can I make I a think, guess? You know, well, I, I, I think one thing that maybe I do a little bit slightly differently is, 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 is uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm more willing to blame my past self. So I actually, the way I think of my past self is like this person who's like slightly related to me, but not related to me, <laughs> like my cousin. Okay. So if I think of Oren from five years ago, that's my cousin. Maybe Oren from a year ago is my brother, right? And so it's like my cousin, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I still have high familiarity with my cousin. I want my cousin to succeed, but I'm happy to disagree with my, and so I, and so that's, that's kind of the way I treat my past self. And so people will always come to me and talk to me, some blog post I wrote from five years ago. Often I don't agree with it anymore. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I don't, that was that, that was the past Oren that wrote that, not the, the current Oren. And I'm okay with just like, you know, whereas I think a lot of times once somebody like they say something, it becomes part of their identity and they don't feel the, they don't feel like they have the luxury of, of, of disagreeing with that past self of theirs. I, I love that so much. I mean, the way you talk about like the purity of data or the accuracy of data, right? I can see a relation there of like, you're, you're being more committed to learning and insight and current knowledge than defending a previous vision of yourself. Yeah. Seems like a, a superpower. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, listen, this awesome. has been great. Yeah, uh, really fun. Tell people again where to connect with you on social. Yeah, just uh, follow me at, on Twitter at Oren, A-U-R-E-N, Oren on Twitter. Great. Anything else you want to leave people with? Or is this no, good? Thank, thank you, Jess. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks so much for making the time. Bye, everyone.